0: Welcome to the Film Links Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 97, Creepy
1: Carpenter. Yeah, and why are you calling him creepy, Jonathan? That seems rude. Because he makes some creepy movies, and it's Halloween, almost. By the time this comes out, I think there'll be like two days until Halloween. So, we decided to pick uh, the self-designated horror master um, to, to talk about. So we've got some uh, some classics, uh, classics from the 70s and 80s in the horror and a little bit into the sci-fi genre today too because we're talking about John Carpenter, the one and only.
0: Oh yeah. Yep. The horror master himself. Um, kind of like the purveyor of the modern slasher film and the person who helped bring horror into the mainstream in American yeah. movie culture, um, slashers and, uh, monster gore. Yeah. horror, <laughs> yeah. Helped advance special effects, um, which we'll talk about extensively in the thing. Um, all right. But before we talk about his work, let's talk about the person himself. Uh, John Carpenter was born in 1948 in Carthage, New York to, the, uh, he was the son of a music professor um, named Howard Ralph Carpenter and that's important as you will see later on but he did move to Kentucky in 1953 where he became interested in films at a very, very young age especially the films of Howard Hawks and John Ford specifically their westerns but also some of their side ventures like Howard Hawks's, uh sci-fi horror genre film from 1951, The Thing from Another World. And if you're like, huh, I wonder if that connects to The Thing. The answer is yes, it does. It
1: does. It definitely does. Alex, I'm so glad that we're finally getting around to a director who was influenced by Howard Hawks and John Ford.
0: Yeah, right? Like, not all
1: of the other <laughs> so ones. So many directors. Yeah. So many directors influenced by these westerns and these movies. And then they go on to... I mean, they don't just copy them and make more westerns. They go on and and... Uh, roll them into their own works and turn them into their own thing. Everyone from Kurosawa to now John Carpenter. Yeah, uh, they definitely did some really good work,
0: and their fundamentals of filmmaking were so solid that it's easy to have them be your heroes regardless of what strain of work you go into. Um, but it just so happens that Hawks ventured into the sci fi horror genre before uh, John Carpenter did or actually approximately when John Carpenter was
1: two years old. So (laughs) the, the interesting thing though is that the thing from another world is not actually, um, directed by Howard Hawks. It's more produced by him and one of his, uh, directing partners, uh, actually directed it, but it's like marketed everywhere as Howard Hawks is the thing from another world. Um, so I just think that's that's really interesting that his his name kind of carries it, even though technically he's not the director of it. Anyway, John Carpenter started making horror
0: shorts as a kid on eight millimeter film stock, uh, and he would go on to collaborate in 1970. And if you're keeping track, he's still really young at that point in time. Um, on a short called "The Resurrection of Bronco Billy," which itself would win an Oscar for Best Live Action Short that year. Um, he then went to usc's film school but he did drop out um so kind of a film brat kind of not um and he dropped out to make his first feature film dark star from 1974 which is co-written by dan o'bannon who is the writer of alien
1: um another film which is super interesting because i've been wanting to i i wanted to bring up alien in this episode uh anyway because there's some some of these movies follow a similar structure and if you watch Dark Star, which I have, one, it's very much like
0: a, a student film, um, just with interesting special effects and stuff. But two, it is very similar to the character dynamics in The Thing, and I feel like that's really important. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway, in 1978, John Carpenter comes out with Halloween, and this is his best his first big commercial success, which kind of helps not really for, not, it's not like he created single handedly the slasher genre. And we'll talk about that later, but it, this is kind of what established it and like mainstreamed it, um, into the popular imagination. Um, and then he begins his collaborations with Kurt Russell in 1979 on a television movie called Elvis, which is an Elvis biopic. Um, all the way, he keeps working all the way up through Ghost of Mars in 2001. After which, he enters a phase of semi retirement, occasionally directing some TV shows and working on some projects, but for the most part, um, kind of retiring from the world of Hollywood, uh, working on his music a bit. He returns to Hollywood with another movie in 2010 called The Ward, um, and then after that, he begins releasing studio albums, Lost, including Lost Themes, Lost Themes 2, and uh, anthology movie themes. Um, and there's like a time period attached to that as well. Um, but that brings us up to the modern day. He's still around. He's not necessarily super duper active in making movies anymore, but he's active in the movie community. Like Jonathan might've mentioned earlier, he has a Twitter. Um, yeah, you know, he's part of film Twitter in a sense. He is a very influential filmmaker, obviously on anybody who likes horror, which is most film nuts. Film buffs um, enjoy wh- horror, or at least have an appreciation for it. Um, so he's still a- out there, still very influential. Even if you like somebody like you know Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright is a huge John Carpenter fan. Quentin Tarantino, oh, yeah. huge John Carpenter fan. Um, so he is worth studying. And of course, a lot of his movies hold up really well, and a lot of his movie making techniques um, kind of carry forward into modern day. And I think have a big impact on the world of television um, lighting, which tends to take a lot from John Carpenter, who often worked on a much smaller budget than a lot of his contemporary um, fellow directors. Anyway, what movies are we talking about today specifically, (laughs) Jonathan?
1: Yeah, so of course we have to cover Halloween since it is the season uh, from 1978. Uh, it was kind of inspired by some of the older, uh, quote unquote slasher films, although they wouldn't have been known as such, but, uh, probably one of the most recognizable is Psycho from 1960, of which there are several references in Halloween. Um, and then we'll be talking about Escape from New York, uh, Alex's personal horror film, uh, from 1981, uh, which was then followed up in 1996 by Escape from LA, um, And then we'll be talking about The Thing from 1982 based on a novella, a sci-fi novella called Who Goes There? Um, And then also somewhat based on Howard Hawks' adaptation of that uh, story, The Thing from Another World, as we already mentioned, from 1951. Yeah, Yeah, I think think Carpenters is a little closer to the story from what I've heard. And uh, the 1951 version is actually more loosely based on the story so um because the 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 original version the 1951 doesn't have any of the mimicking elements that i think Mm -hmm. are actually in the original story so carpenter kind of gets back to that which is uh actually the most interesting part of carpenter's version
0: yeah yeah because it is literally just a thing you never have a clear picture of what it looks like away from copying other things um which is interesting Anyway, let's get into it, shall we? And we're going to start start with Halloween from 1978, starting with a spooky summary from Jason. Go ahead and spook us, bud. Halloween from 1978.
2: On a Halloween night, 1963, in a small town in Illinois, a young boy named Michael Myers murders his older sister for no apparent reason. He is committed to a sanitarium where he is treated by Dr. Loomis. Fifteen years later, Myers escapes the sanitarium, and after seeing teenager Laurie Strode drop a key off at his old house, he stalks her. Even though Loomis is hot on the trail of his former patient, soon the events of Halloween night threaten to repeat themselves as the silent,
1: seemingly supernatural Michael slashes his path through the town. Alright, Alex, let's talk about Halloween from 1978.
0: All right, let's talk about Halloween from 1978. Jonathan, <laughs> had you seen this movie before? Because I'll tell you what, I hadn't. It was the only one this week that I hadn't seen before. I was
1: quite excited okay, to watch it. Okay, interesting. No, I had not either. Uh, I Honestly, I don't know if there are any John Carpenter movies that I had seen before this week. So this is like completely fresh for me. Oh, wow. Wow. But yeah, uh, this is... The the funny thing is, especially coming to this movie, and I mean, we I think we've done this a couple times on the podcast is coming to movies that became very influential, uh, and then finding them later. You you kind of just watch it and you find the origin of all of these tropes and all of these things that have been parodied now uh, over and over and over again. And so it's kind of hard to watch it with just uh, a completely fresh and open mind because yeah. you know. You're doing the thing where you're like, "No, why are you doing that? Don't go up there!" Ah, all these things that horror movies are, uh, kind of, like they've become so I, I guess, aware of it
0: now that that's a trope within horror movies to acknowledge the that people know right. horror movie tropes, right? And it's tempting to go but and watch this, is this kind of the start. act like that, but you have to remember the characters in this movie and the people at the time watching it don't know any of those tropes. Yeah. And John Carpenter explicitly set out to kind of make like the movie he would kind of want to see as a teenager. So he went and he made, um, you know, a movie that he thought he would enjoy, um, that is just chock full of jump scares and like, uh, sexual promiscuity and drugs and stuff. And it gets credit for forming a lot of like this, um, a lot of people like to look at it as, like, a, mor- a morals tale, right? Like, they're like, oh, well, the one character who doesn't do drugs or engage in premarital sex is the one who survives. Um, but if you ask John Carpenter, he's like, no, nah, it wasn't intentional. That just kind of happened. Um, yeah. It made sense that but the character does, like, who wasn't it taking does come risks off like that would just happen to be the one who got the most information first before running it in directly into Michael Myers. Um, yeah. Yeah, was it wasn't. It
1: wasn't not explicitly the guy morality who played, uh, Austin Powers,
0: but inadvertently he set up like this entire morality trope that still exists within horror to the
1: to this day. And you know the 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 film is kind of like it. it almost has its own kind of language, uh, which is really interesting because you know as synth, <laughs> no, not synth yet. Do you, do you uh, not speak but, synth, Jonathan? But I'm I'm talking more about like the the visual kind of things that it takes for granted. And it asks you to take for granted. Like when Mike Myers is just kind of standing off to the side of the frame and staring at people and nobody else in the neighborhood realizes mostly because the protagonist isn't looking in that direction. And then when they do look and he's gone, we're just like, okay, that's cool. That's how like this world works, I guess. Um, But it does that repeatedly enough to where like you just kind of get that this is how the movie works. Um, but it's different from other movies that try to be more realistic, I guess, uh, because it's, it's definitely not, it almost plays off more like, uh, like a nightmare where this thing is just kind of chasing you and coming after you and doesn't stop. Um, and in that sense, like, I definitely started to feel like, um, uh, it it was reminding me of kind of the structure of films like alien or Terminator or something like that, because it's this thing that just keeps coming and doesn't stop and you have to run and hide. And then you think it's dead, but it's not dead. And then you try and kill it again and it's still not dead. Yeah. Um, like the little kid's. said, it's, the it's, it's this relentless terror. Yeah. It's this relentless terror kind of thing, but it's, it's different from, especially movies like Terminator in that it's not like action. It's, it's a slow burn. It's like a slow and steady kind of thing where the audience knows that it's coming and then it, you know, he gets to a couple people very slowly, but then it all kind of culminates at the end when uh Jamie Lee Curtis is is running away. Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: At what point in this movie, Jonathan, do you think you realize that Michael Myers was something more than just a really messed up kid? Cuz I'll tell you what, the start of this movie is interesting and kind of like bold, even by like today's standards, just to have like an unabashedly evil character who is evil. And like, he doesn't seem to know why he's evil. He's just
1: evils everywhere. Um, well, that's the thing is we don't get any, um, direct, uh, evidence of that kind of thing. We, all we get is the psychologist or psychiatrist, um, explaining what's going on in his head that he committed this evil act so young that he kind of wiped his mind clean of any knowledge of right and wrong, uh, or something like that. And so he just is this killing monster. Um, but it almost, it it also kind of feels like he does have some sort of a conscience because he's so obsessed with his sister's grave and everything by the end. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I feel like if this movie was made today, we would have to, like, you know, see all the little things that Michael Myers did while he was in the uh, psych ward, and we would have to, like, see his thought process and kind of explain who he is. But in this one, we don't explain it too much, just enough to know that um, there's, he's not a redeemable character, essentially. Yeah. And in,
0: in his, like, hard-to-define mysterious evilness, That's also, weirdly, at the same time, it's mysterious in its origins, but it's not mysterious in its nature. Like, it's pretty black and white evil. Right. is its own kind of interesting. And I feel like a lot of people tried to pull something like that off after this and failed. And that almost landed us in this spot today where we have to have every single antagonist be so thoroughly explained. Um, Yeah. But that being said, Michael Myers is still a really interesting uh, character in that he doesn't speak at all he wears yeah. a mask we
1: don't see his face he acts like a supernatural we force. do for like one second at the end and it almost looks deformed uh, at the very end when the mask gets ripped off of him um, which brings on a whole
0: new slew of questions questions that would kind of go on to be answered question mark I don't know because I haven't seen them but the uh the franchise keeps going and going uh, there's several there's a few more remakes and then a reboot of kinds reboot re-sequel that came out <laughs> a few years ago that was actually produced by john carpenter and that was his first involvement
1: in the series since like halloween three but like jamie lee curtis has been in almost all of them right
0: I think so don't hold me to that Um, but yeah she's been in several of them at at that point it's like a syndicated TV show it's like that's that's a it's a hard business opportunity to turn down Um, I don't blame her at all
1: for doing that and I think we should bring up the fact that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of uh, Janet Lee who is most famous for Psycho Um, she's the the woman who dies in the famous shower scene um, and especially in this movie where she actually uh, is in the film with her mother uh, directed by John Carpenter, The Fog um, which is kind of fun um, but in this film she almost kind of well, she she ends up making it through this whole movie. Spoilers. I don't know how much we're doing spoilers on this episode um, but I feel like Halloween you can still enjoy kind of Cause you kind of get the idea of where the movie is going uh as it plays through but um there th- the very first murder um is almost cut exactly like the shower scene from psycho with the knife coming up and down several times um with a lot of quick cuts and with a lot of quick cuts and stuff like that. So you're definitely getting that sense. And then at the end, there's a part where Jamie Lee Curtis falls over the the stairwell, which reminded me of the inspector who falls down the stairs in Psycho. Um, so, I mean, you're definitely seeing some of those influences coming into this movie. Certainly. And Jonathan, we have to talk about the music
0: in this movie.
1: Yeah, which at that first, when it started... I thought it was the Exorcist music at first. You're wrong. And Carpenter has said that it was uh, very influenced by the Exorcist, um, but it is—it's definitely different. Um, and but it's—it's again—it's kind of this uh, relentless theme that keeps going and keeps repeating throughout the film. Tense, high-pitched, uh, quick series of notes, but not too many, so it can be memorized
0: by the audience. And it was all done by John Carpenter. Yeah who was he he actually he majored in music at a university in Kentucky before he dropped out of there to go to USC to study film before he dropped out of there to make Dark Star. And what do you think Jonathan about the plant for the movie that comes out approximately 4 years after this one?
1: Yeah, I uh so the kids that Jamie Lee Curtis is babysitting sit down and watch The Thing from Another World on Halloween night um as their kind of scary movie, old scary movie, which fits perfectly. Like he lines it up. He does this thing that we've talked about several times before, where you know you find something and you line up the bits of the thing that relate to whatever your movie is. Um, but I was, I don't even know if he was planning to remake that movie at this point. It was just I like a like big yes. influence on him, probably. I like yes, he kind um, of had a habit for it too, like. I mean, he wrote, and we're going to talk
0: about the origins for escape from New York, but he wrote that script like 10 years before it was made. So yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of his style is to kind of just have it, have everything. Um, he, he just kind of works ahead of himself, especially in those earlier years where he all of the stuff he did was felt pretty new and pretty fresh. Um, he would go on to do some Stephen King stuff too, like The Fog. Um, yeah. Which is a really, really. I, I really enjoyed The Fog. I know you just watched it too, Jonathan. Um, yeah, no, it was, no, it was, it was fun. Too. He's really He's good. He's definitely with these got some style. Relentless, unstoppable monsters. Unexplainable. Unexplainable yeah. monsters. Yeah, right. And like sometimes the movie's all about trying to understand the monster. Um, Like if you watch The Thing, some of it's about that. Or if you go watch Prince of Darkness, it's definitely about that. Like the entire protagonist team is a bunch of researchers. And sometimes it's just about stumbling into something and then trying desperately to survive. Yeah, Like in Halloween, which is something we can all connect to, right? Because that's just survival instinct. Just basic, basic, Mm -hmm. basic survival instinct. And hopefully it's not something you experience on a day-to-day basis, um, but it can be interesting and relatable and highly, highly, highly connective
1: to our instincts to experience it in a film world. Yeah. And I mean, even... uh Just kind of to make it a little personal, like some of most of my nightmares revolve around being chased by something and like not being able to hide or getting cornered or something like that. So these kinds of movies are the ones that, you know, really strike a chord, because even if it's kind of an irrational fear, like I don't expect to ever be chased by something that's planning to kill me and not being able to escape from it. But it's just one of these things that strikes plans some kind on of chord, Jonathan. <laughs> I think
0: that just happens. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to burst your like silver lining there. But if it's going to happen, it's just going to happen. Most of my nightmares revolve around losing my dog. Yeah, which is connected well, to the that's thing. actually.
1: Well, actually, the he kills a dog in Halloween too. He does kill a dog in Halloween. One or two. John yeah, Carpenter I was. Kills I was actually
0: dogs this week, y'all. <laughs> a lot of dogs. Yeah, I was
1: actually wondering if they were going to kill one and escape from New York and we would have had a, a triple threat, but uh, there's um, no way that Alex that, made it through the movie,
0: that so. prison that island full of prisoners definitely had eaten all the dogs on that island. There's oh, no yeah. way. That's there, there's true. a reason we didn't see any dogs and it's not just <laughs> because they didn't want to pay to have animals on set. It it's probably because they, they were eaten um yeah. in the in the world of the story. Alright, Jonathan. So As we know, Halloween's always been the time for dressing up. It's always been a time connected to kind of, you know, death and the spiritual uh, nature of the soul and the afterlife. And it's kind of always been connected to spooky stuff. But has it always really been directly connected to horror? Um, Or did John Carpenter's Halloween kind of more directly pin the two
1: together? No, I think that the the ghoulish nature of halloween has always lent itself to that um i mean so even kind of in a different spin but uh we talked about arsenic and Old lace and that's set at halloween it's not a horror movie in itself but it uses the horror genre oh, to that's a good point. convey its comedy because yeah, that was that um, was that was the point i was interested in was looking purely
0: at the cinematic record I could not think of a horror movie or a spooky movie, uh, that was directly connected to Halloween before Halloween came out, after which, you know, uh, there's plenty. Yeah, there's plenty. And there's also, there's a lot to be said about the fact that Halloween is a big, is it one of those movies that did a good job of bringing horror into the suburbs? And then suddenly sub the suburbs became like an ideal place for horror movies, um, yeah, because it's familiar. Because they're supposed
1: to be safe. Yeah, it's yeah.
0: supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be like and then suddenly it's not. And also, it's where so much of the uh, of, of the young teenage population lives, right? Like suburbs yeah. have become the place where everyone, gr- nearly everyone, grows up, or so many. Because it's people where you go to start a family, up. and then, that's the whole point of the suburbs. It's not where you expect a family to end. Dun dun dun. Right. Okay, Jonathan. What do you think about the connection of including the thing from another world. Do you think the way Michael Myers functions in this movie connects to the way the monster in the thing from another world acts? Um, Or do you think it was just John Carpenter, uh, you know, finding a way to sneak in one of his favorite movies?
1: Yeah, I think it's a little bit more that. I don't think it goes so deep into connecting the two monsters themselves. Um, because in the thing from another world, uh, it's, it's purpose is to reproduce itself and kind of take over. And I don't think that that's really the purpose of Michael Myers. The purpose of Michael Myers is to, um, kill. Well, yeah, to kill. I mean, if you want to go any deeper than that, it's, it's, something about him feeling displaced by his sister and her boyfriend or something like that Um, but I wouldn't even read that much into it Um, I think that the thing from another world just happened to be uh, a good kind of visual that is like oh we're watching a classic horror movie I mean he could have honestly if he wanted to connect the monsters more directly he could have done something like Dracula or um, even maybe Frankenstein uh, something along those lines um but i think that that's just kind of like one of his favorite things and he found some lines that worked as far as the building of the fear and all of the guys kind of uh in the thing from another world realizing that they're in danger and that kind of stuff which which worked but i don't know that the monsters themselves are are super related
0: yeah yeah
1: and what do you think about this idea of
0: uh michael myers being a new brand of monster Because before this, you know, think about the major movie monsters from the Universal era, Uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, the two you just mentioned. They're both sympathetic characters, right? Like Frankenstein Mm -hmm. didn't want to exist and suddenly he exists. And Dracula is a cursed being. Um, Yeah, they're both
1: fantasy creatures.
0: Yeah, yeah. In one way or another. Michael Myers has,
1: there's nothing sympathetic about Michael Myers. But I think that brings it back to, uh, psycho. It's a it's a psychological horror film. It's a character with a fractured psyche. Something that happened a long time ago that has kind of irreparably uh, destroyed his mind and kind of set him on this path, uh, which is also makes him unreachable. Well, and that's Norman what makes Bape has some sympathy
0: about him, though, right? Like it's very clear that he was. Emotionally abused by his mother to the extent that he fractured, and went right. Loony, and whereas Michael Myers just snapped one day and killed his sister, and then became yeah. the embodiment of evil.
1: Yeah, and we don't. I mean, I'm. But we don't get the full backstory of that. We just see the end result. So we don't know if there was something that led up to that. But you're right. The Film does not build any sympathy for Michael Myers, but I'm just saying, like, as ter- in terms of monsters, I think he's along the lines of Norman Bates, where it's a psychological thing rather than some kind of uh, unexplainable fantastical creature that couldn't happen to any one of us. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. The fact that it, it could be a well, normal he, person he does, is what he makes does it scary. Become a supernatural
0: creature, though. Right. Right. Like he is (laughs) when he gets shot four times. uh, Six times. Um, Oh, okay. And somehow is, comes back
1: for like four or five more movies. Honestly, that's the point where, uh, you were asking like when he becomes elevated out of this kind of, uh, uh, into this kind of supernatural realm. And that, I mean, that's at the very end, but that's probably the point where, um, you know, I was like, okay, so he's like, there's something else. And it's it's probably John Carpenter just trying to like elevate the fear of him. But uh, up to that point, you feel like he could be killed. Because nothing really happened that I felt, oh, he should totally be dead right now. It was more like, Jamie Lee Curtis, stop dropping the knife right next to him. Take it with you. Yeah, right. Uh, that bothered me so much. No, that's fair. I mean, she had no idea what she was doing. And
0: she was definitely on panic mode. 24-7. Yeah. But
1: take the freaking
0: knife with you. Also true. Um, all right, Jonathan, let's talk about the legacy of this movie. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, I don't think I've seen any of these movies. I haven't either, so. <laughs> My interest in horror is definitely more recent. Um, Friday the 13th, slasher movie, bunch of teenagers. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, slasher movie, bunch of teenagers. Scream, slasher movie, bunch of teenagers. Um, all following in the, the tropes um, and patterns set up
1: by Halloween. Yeah. And I will say from what I've heard, cause I haven't seen any of these either. Uh, but I think scream, uh, which comes later than all these others it's kind of, is it's kind of a, a half w- parody. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a parody. So it's, that's when people started to pick up on those tropes and then started to incorporate them with a wink and a nod rather than as like a, a direct use, uh, for their effect. Um, But yeah, I mean, some of the biggest names that are now cult classics that I'm sure plenty of people have just like, uh, you know, queued up and ready to go for uh, for this Thursday on Halloween. You know, they are they're coming from this movie because this one, uh, you know, it set a precedent and it did really well at the box office. It was very successful right off the bat and then uh, also gathered a cult following uh, as it went on, which is not true for all of John Carpenter's films or all horror films. Um, but this one just, you know, it hit a nerve with people and it kept going and it has created these kind of iterations that are different in their own rights, but they they owe some sort of a debt to Halloween, even if it's just uh, them getting made and greenlighted because the studio execs had something to look at that was like, oh, Halloween did well. I can get behind this. Yeah, right. This is definitely um,
0: another one of those Hollywood trends that takes off. Something starts working. Let's green light everything that looks like it. Superhero movie, superhero movies worked. Green light it. Noir movies worked. Green light it. Right. All right. Let's talk about Escape from New York, Jonathan. from 1981. Uh, This one's less scary, but you could make an argument that's pretty spooky and it works on, on with fear in a big way. But before we talk about it, give us a semi-spooky summary of Escape from New York, Jason. Escape from New York
2: from 1981. Following a 400% increase in the crime rate during the late 80s, the United States resorts to turning Manhattan into a maximum security prison, walling it off from the rest of the country. Now in 1997, the NATO alliance is engaged in a massive war with the USSR, While on the way to a peace summit, the president and his cassette tape containing information that will secure the peace have their plane hijacked and crashed into New York. Renowned criminal Snake Pliskin is coerced by the police force into going into the wild prison island and retrieving the president and his tape. Inside, he only has himself and the doubtful help of the cabbie, Brain, and his girl, Maggie. Last but not least, Snake has to deal with a literal ticking clock on his wrist counting down to when a device within him triggers and kills him, unless he can save the president on time.
1: At first I thought that uh, there was going to be some sort of law and order in inside of New York, but it's just literally they just dump them there and let them do whatever yeah. they want. Yeah. It is,
0: uh, specifically it is that the prison within New York is more of a extra-legal
1: island of sorts on which all violators are trapped Um, i think i expected it to be more like uh, sci-fi shawshank redemption um but it's definitely not that (laughs) yeah yeah no it's definitely not that all right uh alex why don't you talk us through your (laughs) uh let's talk about your uh your personal connection to escape from new york (laughs) uh
0: i don't I spent two – so the quick way of, of, of telling the story is I spent two years in New York working on a show. Um, but the way in which I worked on the show involved me working very long days with very long commutes, uh, very late at night, uh, which meant that uh, I had to sleep during the day, which meant I had maybe an hour of free time in which I could – Um, experience the city on like a daily basis. And my weekends were typically messed up because I work basically six days every week. So I, my experience in New York was very close to like just constant work and constant exhaustion. So it's not something that's directly against New York anymore. Um, but it was not a good time in my life, and I was very, 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 very excited to finally get out of there, and at the end of my second year there, when I finally knew I could leave and not have to come back... Um, i went and watched uh escape from new york and i had been planning on watching it the first year but i had a feeling that i'd get sent back so uh i went and watched it the second year as like a celebration thing on like the last or the second to last day i was there um and it was it was nice it was really really nice
1: yeah so there you go so this is uh this is like a horror movie for alex when he thinks about those those years of oh, yeah. his life. is this not a horror movie for everybody else <laughs> Uh, There actually are some some interesting elements that kind of pull from the horror aesthetic. So inside New York is uh, it's always nighttime. And even uh, I was reading on Wikipedia, John Carpenter had kind of the same experience that you had in New York because they would shoot it all legitimately at night. And he would have like he was able to shut down like whole blocks of New York City at a time. They shot this Um, in New York. They shot it in New York at night, so his days were flipped for the whole time that they were shooting it, Um, and uh, he said it was a terrible, terrible experience, Um, but the aesthetic is, like, there's a lot of, and this is something that you see in um, a lot of John Carpenter movies, like The Fog and uh, The Thing and stuff, but um, there's, like, just kind of unmotivated light and very colorful light so yeah. you get green rim lights and you get uh reds kind of, and reds and blues and just kind of whatever feels right but nothing that's that you can necessarily like pin to a light yeah. source yeah and that is very similar to modern day
0: uh, television which shoots very fast with very high, a lot of very high concept stuff um, specifically I'm thinking about Gotham cause that's a show I worked on and I went and watched John Carpenter stuff and I was like, this is how they light it. Um, cause mm. there's all these splashes of color everywhere, you know, back in like the film noir days, we've talked a lot about them painting with light and the reason why everyone was smoking in movies was because it gave it texture. Well, smoking became out of vogue. So, and it sounds like there's not smoking from the. From the steam vents in New York, they just found it's all over the place. All sorts of reasons to put it everywhere in the movie because it looked good Um, and helps capture the light and put texture on the screen, add depth to the the scene, Um, and splashes of color because why not? And if you look through all of um, his filmography after um, Halloween, he does in like basically every single movie. Um, and I watched nearly all of his movies within the past two weeks. Um, and it's just, it's a really, really cool style. It's a really cool technique. I will say in modern day TV, it works pretty well because it's quick. Um, it's easy. Uh, and they do a better job of motivating it. Like they'll throw a window up in front of the light. So it's like, Oh, it's coming from outside. Um, or they'll throw up like a practical in the corner so that it looks motivated. Um, but John Carpenter's is a little more extreme and a little more in that, uh, realm of the unreal. But then again, everything about escape from New York is exaggerated and unreal. Oh yeah. I mean, even just, I can't get over the opening line. Crime rates rise by
1: 400%. Yeah. I'm like, that's Uh, absurd. Yeah. And the other thing is that, uh, it's set in 1996 which is 15 years, 96 or 97. So it's about 15 years after the movie's released. Uh, And now we are more than 15 years from that futuristic date, which I think is hilarious. Um, I I love sci-fi that we've already, uh, you know, surpassed the projected uh, date for. Um, And it definitely, like, the sci-fi stuff has such a Tron feel and the music has a very Tron feel. I love the graphics. Um, oh, yeah. Actually, no, Apparently, my, favorite,
0: my favorite moment for the graphics is when they're flying over the city and they're looking down at the city through like a program. In
1: the 3D mesh. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: like a 3D mesh program. I'm like, it would be so, like just a camera would both look better and work better for their purposes, like diegetically. Um, yeah. But you know what? You've already committed.
1: Apparently, uh, James Cameron did some of the map painting and visual effects uh, on this movie, uh, which is kind of fun. I'll stay quiet Um, on that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that all kind of goes into the idea of world building, which this movie has to do. And the other two that we're talking about today don't um, because it is set in the future. It's set in this different kind of alternate universe America, um, that is kind of coming out of this era after Watergate happened where there's distrust, distrust of the president, um, which plays a lot into this movie. Um, because I mean, you know, the fact of having to turn all of Manhattan into a prison already starts to give America kind of, uh, 1984, uh, totalitarian kind of feels and the fact that Kurt Russell has to save this president that we as the audience aren't really sure we can trust um, kind of uh, adds to that um, and I'm not I can't I wasn't totally sure what the deal was with the the tape that he had to to present at it this was, meeting it was something that would was
0: secure it? the peace between so all of this is framed against a war between NATO which is the North Atlantic treaty organizations like America and Europe and a few other countries thrown in versus uh, the Soviet Union, which is the thing when this movie came out um, right. and stopped being a thing around the time that Jonathan and I were born. Um, but they're, they're like the president's on the way to the meeting and he has the tape that will secure the peace. And so they're more focused on getting the tape than the president. They're like, if the president dies, whatever, but bring us the tape. Um, right. And it's essentially a mulligan, but it's a very high concept mulligan or
1: do, do I mean mulligan? I think I mean MacGuffin. Look, they're both <laughs> yeah, funny MacGuffin. Scottish words. Give me a break. But that's just kind of just setting, setting the, um, stage here in terms of kind of the political, um, and cultural fears that were going into the, uh, setup of this movie. Um, and then, of course, we have everyone who goes into it. Kurt Russell, the first of several—I uh, think this is the first of several collaborations with John Carpenter. Oh, several. Uh, um, and uh, Lee Van Cleef, from LA, who I was which not is awful. Yeah, and Lee Van Cleef, who I was not expecting to see in this film, the guy who commissions Kurt Russell, uh, and he plays the bad in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, Lee Van Cleef so that is a big reason why this movie works. It is; he's so good. And the lack <laughs> um, of him is a big reason
0: why Escape from LA doesn't work. Because Lee Van Cleef is very experienced at like B movie genre acting, um, and being the bad guy, and being the bad guy, and the people who play the antagonists in Escape from LA just can't hold up like to the acting some might say overacting, um, that Kurt Russell does in Escape from L.A., Um, which I don't blame him for. Like, there's nothing else going on in that movie. He was trying to put it on his back and carry it. Um, But in Escape from New York, like, these two butt heads perfectly in, like, this exaggerated way. But, like, if you buy that you're in this weird uh, future, then it works. It's in it. Yeah. Um, Also, the police state in this movie is cruel and uncaring but it's not malicious. The one in Escape from LA becomes like a handmaiden situation where it becomes like this odd religious theocracy on top of a totalitarianism thing and it just doesn't it, it's weird. It's it's not, it's not nearly as well balanced as Escape from New York. Like everybody in this movie is very Cruel and cold and callous about how they go about things. And that kind of sets everybody on this movie on this oddly even ground. Um, It kind of makes
1: it work. And the other thing is they don't try to explain too much. We are only given the information we need to get the story going. It's New York has been turned into a prison. There's a lot more crime. Kurt Russell has... So that that one of the vagities is the fact that Kurt Russell has been arrested for something and then they need him. So they promise him a pardon if he can complete this mission. Um, So we don't know what that is. We don't know Kurt Russell's backstory. They keep doing uh, this thing where literally everyone that meets him is like, Snake, I thought you were dead. But they don't explain like what happened or who told all these people that are stuck in this prison that uh, Snake Plissken was dead. Um, it just kind of gives this ominous sense to Snake, um, and I guess we should talk about uh, just like the character design of Snake, which I feel is like is so iconic. Um, even though again, it has not that much motivation, except for the fact that the eye patch looks super cool and whatever his kind of military outfit is. You know, he just he looks like an action figure come to life.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the perfect idea of what a badass is at in 1981. Yeah. Like it's like this clash of 70s and 80s all rolled into one. Uh would it surprise uh you Jonathan to hear that this has been turned into like a comic book series?
1: Nope. nope not at all. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, it feels it's that kind of exaggeration. Yeah. So yeah, and then there's there's all the other characters that are the characters in New York, all the people that have been arrested and there's some there's, like, you get the sense that there's this whole world in there uh, of, you know, the crazies who are just the ones who have lost all kind of sense of civility. And then there's this other kind of hierarchy where you have the Duke um, and then Brain, who's under the Duke but wants to kind of get out of the system. Yeah, he's playing all sides. And, yeah, and he's got this uh, this backstory with Snake. um and Brain is played by uh, what's his face, who was also an alien. Harry Dean Just Dane to Sandin. bring everything back to Alien. yeah. An Harry Dean Stanton,
0: amazing, amazing character actor. Um, yeah, absolutely. If you haven't seen *Parish Texas*, go see *Parish Texas*. He's really great in that. Maybe his best spot of acting, but he's in a lot of stuff, a lot of B movie stuff from like the '80s, um, or I guess the '70s and '80s was when we have to stop calling it B movie because we're out of the studio system so and start calling it genre films. Um, Yeah, he does a lot of work in that area. and He's really, really good.
1: Yeah. And he did great in this as the guy that, you know, uh, Snake needs, but he doesn't know if he can trust him. And he kind of goes back and forth. Yeah. Um, I also love that he has Snake has a backstory with nearly
0: everybody in this movie. He either has a backstory with them or somebody's heard of him.
1: Yeah, you could almost make a movie where he just gets arrested and has to survive in this world and he doesn't have this mission to go on and he's just, like, you know, dealing with the repercussions of whatever um, interactions he's already had with all of these criminals in his former life. Yeah. Um, yeah, But no, yeah, it's just it's, it's a really interesting setup. Okay,
0: I'm going to ask you an odd question, Jonathan. What do you think of the decision to put the snake tattoo... Not on
1: his chest, but oddly low on his belly. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I just kind of ignored it. I didn't think it too stuck. much about it, but it is a really weird decision. It stuck out to me, this, this watch through, and I was like, that seems awkward.
0: That seems like an odd choice. Why would they do that? And I don't have an answer for it. It just seemed unique. And that's probably why it was picked. Um, OK, John. Um, we have to talk about the scores for all these movies because John Carpenter was involved in the scores on all these movies. But how do you feel about the synth here? Because we're, we're actually in the 80s now, unlike Halloween. And right. Halloween is pretty is kind of synthy. But Escape from New York is very synthy. It's very synthy. And so it yeah, like I said, it, it dates it real, it, real, real hard.
1: Yeah, it made me, again, it made me think of Tron, but the thing is, Tron takes place inside of this computer world. Um, and Escape from New York, and like, so since work for Tron, because they are an electronic instrument by nature, and so when you're making a movie about going inside of a computer or inside of a video game, that kind of like holds together no matter what time you're watching it. But in this movie it's like, yes, the technology has advanced, but it's not really about that. And so it, it does create this sort of disconnect now because we're not used to it being in every single movie that we watch.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. And it's it's something that
1: thankfully fell
0: out of style, but dates most movies really bad. And while it mm-hmm. dates Escape from New York pretty pretty bad, it's in the thing but I feel like it doesn't date The Thing. I feel like The Thing is one of those movies that feels like it could have come out yesterday, and I would believe you. Uh, But let's talk about it now. The Thing from 1982. Jason, what's the spooky thing?
2: The Thing from 1982. On a remote Antarctic base, a group of Americans take in a dog being chased by a crew from a nearby Norwegian base. But something soon proves to be amiss the Norwegian base is destroyed and the dog is acting strange. It's not long before the dog kills and absorbs the other dogs as it's determined it is an alien being with the ability to take on any form and survive so long as its cells aren't incinerated. As the thing proceeds to terrorize the camp, it's not long before the base crew begin to turn on each other in a spiral of ever-increasing and ever-dangerous paranoia.
1: So just to kind of... um... Piggyback off of our conversation about the music uh, from the last movie. Um, it's called a the music, in, a segue. Uh, the music for this was actually composed by Ennio Morricone, who did the music for *The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly*. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there are so many little connections between all of these things. Um, but yeah, this one—the music did not stick out to me really in one way or another, There's as a lot far of quiet as uh, in this movie. Yeah, The first first long, long,
0: long, 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 like 10 minute section of the movie is completely quiet. It's really good. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of piercing wind. There's the the impression that you're completely isolated up here, except for these people and this thing. You don't know what's what. And they do a really good job of putting those together.
1: All right, Alex, how did you uh, feel about the whole first like 10 minutes of this movie being about a helicopter trying to shoot down a dog?
0: Well... Uh, I certainly get it the second time the first time I watched this movie it upset me the second time I watched this movie I was like yeah shoot the freaking dog
1: Yeah, um, seriously, and then the third- nobody asked questions about it either like I feel like if I uh, if I just encountered a random helicopter trying to kill this dog like maniacally I would at least ask the question. What's wrong with this dog? I think they just assumed the Norwegians had gone crazy because they yeah. all they all
0: had like they all, Which all also makes already had to some point and that was that's actually the connection back to dark stars that dark Star is about a crew in deep space who have all gone nuts um yeah. because they've been out there for like 20 years uh the thing they have been out there for that long but they are under a lot of pressure they don't like each other um there's already a sense of paranoia and then like this wrecking ball comes through that just so happens to be an alien that can take any form Um, and Mm -hmm. maybe doesn't necessarily want to kill them, but is very dangerous and very much wants to escape um, and poses a threat to the earth, possibly.
1: So it's such a good setup. Like, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. And I do want to, I want to talk about the setup for the movie in relation to the original and kind of do a little bit of compare and contrast because uh, in the 1951 version, we're following a group of scientists who themselves find this spaceship, which this thing has fallen out of. They bring it back to camp, wake it up, and it starts attacking them. But in that film, it's like this this, this weird plant-based kind of thing that is trying to uh, just reproduce, and it kind of needs to drink blood. And it's in a sense, it's kind of like a uh, little shop of horrors, um, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, but in this one, it's about a group of scientists and, uh, like we said, it starts off with this helicopter with this Norwegian scientist in it trying to kill this dog and they end up killing him out of kind of self-preservation because they think he's just gone nuts. Um, and then they go and they find mm-hmm. out that this other team of scientists has already found this thing um, and they bring back the remains of of something that they don't understand and then that's how it all starts for them. Uh, but they use some of they They find some footage of the Norwegian scientists finding this ship and this thing, which is almost exactly mimics the footage in the thing from another world of the scientists finding it, uh, which I thought was was a kind of fun little uh, way to to tie it in. And at first, I wasn't sure about the idea of kind of distancing. The group of scientists were following from the group of scientists that actually find it but i think it works really well yeah no
0: i feel like this adaptation you know what i enjoyed the howard hawk's version of the thing kind of felt like an episode of twilight zone to me <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, especially in like the fact that it was unexplained for a while um although it wasn't quite as mysterious or enigmatic as twilight zone normally is um but I definitely like. I mean, the the thing from 1982, like the John Carpenter version, is arguably one of the best movies of all time. It's just, it's it, and definitely if you're going to limit it to horror movies, certainly one of the best horror movies of all time. Yeah, it's and so
1: good. I'm very glad that you're the one that brought up Twilight Zone, Alex, because I <laughs> like was thinking biting Twilight his Zone. tongue over there, just like I want to bring it waiting. up. Bring it I'm just waiting. I want to bring it up. Just waiting. But I know I'm the guy. Um, but not in relation to the 1951 version. I actually didn't think about it very much during that one. But I did during this one in 1982 because the fact that the thing could be any of them and that they all start to distrust each other makes it feel very much like the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, and it almost has this this uh, uh, red scare undertones to it, although I think we're a little bit um, past that at this point, although I'm not totally not sure. 1982? Yeah. Uh, it's it's more of like
0: it, the red scare is closer to the fear of communism itself is closer to like the 60s, maybe early 70s. Once you get past yeah, which that, was it's definitely closer in to the like, twilight zone. Fear of apocalypse. Like yeah. it's not like necessarily fear of Russia, it's the fear of all this pent-up tension that's been in the world for decades now and you're like,
1: "Oh my gosh." But I'm just thinking like on a very high level, this idea that the enemy could be anybody and could have infiltrated them and be secretly hiding within anyone that you know closely feels very much like a Red Scare kind of a theme that the Twilight Zone would have handled and did in episodes like The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, and so that's I, I really liked that undertone to it because the thing from Another World didn't have that much of a thematic... Um, undertone to it it was more just about this alien but that element of the distrust makes this film really interesting on a character level oh my god the character level of this film is
0: amazing i mean even from the get-go they do john carpenter does such a good job directing these little individual moments i'm thinking about the guy on the radio the guy who's just got like this thousand yard stare and he's clearly a weirdo the guy on roller skates um, the guy yeah, who's holed the up scientist. in his office, the chief who's holed up in his office with a gun um, and looks like a hero from like the 30s or 40s. And all of these individualities are important over the course of the movie because what would hurt this movie is if all the people dying felt generic, right? Yeah. Like they have to feel unique because the audience has to feel conned and betrayed whenever one of them turns out to be the monster and not – or the
1: thing or, and not – when one that you what when one that you expect to be the monster is not so like the the general who feels like he's got something off about him um turns out to not be the one and then he's chained to in the chair to the other guy who is a thing and you're suddenly like oh crap get him out of there you're like you suddenly see the flaw in their plan of tying down all the people that they're suspecting um but it makes for this really great moment and that whole scene of him doing the blood test is one of the most suspenseful oh gosh, scenes that i've so ever good. seen the yeah. scene's so good and the fact that it's like a
0: little freaking jack in the box like there's a process he's got oh he's got to torch the little thing and then it's like and at first it, you're not even sure it's, if it's going to work it's the tension of cutting the red wire every single time and the first like 3 don't do anything right like uh-huh. you don't know it might not be just he might be wrong he, it might just yeah. not be working until it does. And then the tension is so high. And the one guy didn't know he was a monster.
1: I don't think he did. That's And that's one of the scariest parts is because once the transformation has happened completely, uh, it's indistinguishable. And the, the person doesn't know themselves. Like you said, it's, it's – uh, That thing, but then once they're threatened, then the thing just comes out and the person's consciousness is gone. Yeah, or the imitation of the consciousness. Paranoia is just it's so it's so high strung in this movie. It's so good. Yeah. Ah, man.
0: And this is actually part of um, John Carpenter's uh, Apocalypse trilogy, Jonathan. That includes The Thing, The Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness, which all Mm -hmm. involve potentially world-ending events maybe world ending events, watch them and you decide, I guess. Um, but they're all about that. And you know, the paranoia in here can definitely be connected to, like you said, the tension of the last decade of the cold war. Um, a hundred percent. Uh, so
1: Jonathan, what do you think about the special effects in this movie? I wish I hadn't seen any of them before I watched the movie. (laughs) what I had because yeah. I would do I mean, things kind of hard to I'd avoid. Watch. Yeah. Especially if you, you know, go on YouTube and you watch compilations of like the greatest practical effects and films and stuff like that. Yeah, then you have see hands down of all time in this movie. Oh yeah. Uh, And uh, so I had seen several of them but the other thing is this is not a movie where they like hide the monster so it happened so many times that there were many of the transformations that I hadn't seen and it's just so good and so detailed and creepy and slimy and like all of the elements that go into making a monster are pulled off so flipping well in this movie um and they're I think they're all done practically. I don't think that... I think this is uh, an entirely practical movie. This is right before you start doing uh, CGI effects and they're really bad. And I'm so glad that this didn't come out 10 years later because it probably would have involved a lot of really bad uh, CGI effects. Yeah, a lot of Um, this
0: work is really painstaking too. Like There was a lot of love poured into this movie. Uh, the oh, yeah. story uh, that I, I always love from this movie. So you know the scene where uh, the one guy has seemingly come down sick and the doctor is trying to revive him when reality mm-hmm. he's been taken over up by the monster. Um, and he, as, he gets as the, the doctor performing CPR, his chest opens up like a mouth and then clamps down on the doctor's hands. Um Body and rips his arms off. Yeah, it's real. it's really gory. It's, it's terrifying. It's not something that anyone would ever sign up to see. But once you've seen it, you're like, okay, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. But it took a full day of shooting to get that shot where it opens up and takes his hands off. Um, it took the guy who is transforming into the monster and doesn't know it yet is... Uh, it had to be like on the table for the entire day. So he just laid on that table for like 12 full hours. Um, it took six it hours to set up too, each though. shot. Oh yeah. Definitely got paid for it. Um, <laughs> it. took six hours to set up each shot. Each take took wow. six hours to set up. Um, it was painstaking, right? Because his chest rips open. So yeah. you, you have, uh, you, you have, uh, a mechanical, I, I don't know exactly effect. how they did it. There is mechanics involved, but it essentially had to have parts that te- tore. So you had to have either replacement start or parts on standby or the other parts. And then, of course, the parts had to be dressed, they had to have a shirt put on it. Um, and then. You know how
1: they did the arm thing, right? Uh, I don't know, actually. So, apparently, there was a uh, a double for the actor who's using the defibrillator or whatever, and they got a double amputee and put prosthetic arms on him so that literally they get ripped off, and the guy doesn't have arms anyway, so they just rip off the prosthetics, and his, his normal <laughs> little, uh, you know, rest of his arms are there, which is so brilliant, uh, but also, like... I feel like anyone else would have tried to come up with some kind of way around that, but he's just like, no, let's just find some guy who doesn't have arms and put some fake arms on him and rip them off.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the heck, that is one way to <laughs> to show it or um, to, to get it done for sure. Um, yeah, no, so obviously all of the effects in this movie are really intense. Um, obviously, there's the part where the husky transforms into a full version of the thing while it's metamorphosizing. Um, oh, and this is a part I wanted to and bring up. And then eats the other husky. It eats most, it eats some of the other huskies and some of the other huskies escape. Um, yeah. Which was nice. But <laughs> there is, so the monster in this movie is not evil. It is terrifying. Yeah, not necessarily. But it is yeah. not evil. It's pretty clearly shown that its goal is to escape. Over the course of this movie. It is building... At one point, it's like building a spaceship underground. Like, it wants to get away and get home. And it is very, very clearly confused. And it shows that both in the way it acts and in the way it transforms. It almost looks like it's struggling. Like, there's no way a shapeshifter would have that hard of a time shape-shifting. But these are all unfamiliar beings, unfamiliar places, unfamiliar language, unfamiliar structures.
1: It's been trapped in ice for, you know, a hundred thousand years. Um, and there's the, the scene where the one guy is starting to transform and he runs out into the snow and his hands are not yet completely done transforming and they're about to torch him. And he just stares at Kurt Russell And you kind he kind of has this deer in headlights kind of look like you're talking about. And then he gives out this terrifying yell and then Kurt Russell just torches him, uh, in a, this weird kind of almost sympathetic scene where you're right. He, the, the monster looks kind of confused. Like he's just trying to do what it takes to stay alive. Um, But he knows that he's just about to get completely obliterated. Oh, for
0: sure. 100%. And there is a sense in this movie at a certain point where all of the characters seem to realize that they're doomed. Um, Yeah. Right? And that actually takes us to the ambiguous ending, Jonathan.
1: Yeah, so let's put down the spoiler warning here because I do... Um, want to talk about this, but I like it so much that I don't want it to be spoiled for you. So, uh, go ahead and stop now if you want and go watch the movie and then come back and pick it up. Um, because the ending is so great. There's, there's after Kurt Russell has had this big climax, um, with the, uh, the, the final form of the monster that has taken over like three of them. And it like all three of them are visible inside of its transformation at the same time. And Kurt Russell ends up blowing it up and blowing up like the whole station. And then he gets away. And then one of the other guys comes out, uh, and we've forgotten about him. And suddenly Kurt Russell's like, I don't know if I can trust you. And the other guy's like, I don't know if I can trust you. Uh, And so they both sit there completely unable to know if they are each the monster. And they're so exhausted from having routed it out from everywhere else that they, I mean, we just end the movie with them sitting there staring at each other, not trusting each other. Um, And we don't know if one of them is the monster. We thought that the monster was completely dead, but now it might not be. It might still have a chance to get out and get to the rest of the world. Um, And it just ends like that. With the uh, with the whole space with the well, not space station. What with the whole um uh science station burning and these two guys just sitting there not sure that's it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean like they're screwed. Like, how are they gonna get out of there? Even even yeah. if the monster is dead completely, they're yeah. stuck in they the middle of no Antarctica. <laughs> and literally yeah. the near space has already been destroyed. So Right at the start of the movie. Which was actually a nice touch. It kind of turns the whole movie into like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Like you see that first, once you see the first base destroyed, from that point on, you're seeing the thing fulfill itself a second time. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it was destined to happen a second time. And it's interesting to watch the character struggle against that.
1: Or yeah, it's one of those things where you feel like, if they had been able to communicate with the first guy that got there trying to kill the dog, um, they could have figured it all out from the very beginning because this other station obviously already figured it out and went through the same thing but was so isolated and then they they killed the only person who knew anything about it that suddenly they have to discover the whole thing all over again. Um, but real quick, Alex, I want to know your thoughts on the setting of Antarctica. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I thought it
0: was really, really nice. It was really, really unique. It was really, really barren and isolated, which was important to the story. You could have done the same thing on an island or in the desert. but
1: Or the, in space. I was thinking space. In space.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's possible to do this in space. But part of the threat of this creature is that it might escape and get off of Antarctica, but not and a, into and, yeah, space cover the to world. get to a yeah. different part of the world. Um, what did you think of... The well, opening one, shots of the well, movie being the spaceship.
1: Well, one one thing I wanted to say about the fact that it was Antarctica is the fact that, um, and at some point in the movie, I remembered this and it kind of threw off my whole viewing experience. But Antarctica doesn't have like you know twelve hour days and twelve hour nights. You know it has almost it has months and months of almost complete daylight and months of almost complete darkness. There are periods Um, of the year where it has a close to normal day. Yeah, but it does specifically point out that it it is in the winter um, at the beginning of the film. And I just I was just sort of thinking about how interesting it would be if this was somewhere, you know, closer to the North Pole, where over the course of two weeks, the sun is coming up and at like the very end of the film, like the sun comes up or it dips completely below the horizon or something. I just thought that would be like a really interesting kind of a, a thing, but they don't even bring it up. And I was just like, okay, fine. But, um, I was just like, oh yeah, aren't there like really, really long days in Antarctica? Um, but yeah, the, I mean, I, as far as the film starting off with the spaceship landing on earth, um, is kind of unnecessary. And also in the 1951 version, you get the sense that that spaceship had been there for like thousands of years buried under the ice. Um, and they just now discovered it and, and dug it up. Uh, and I'm not sure what the timeline is on this one. If that was supposed to be like it happened. And then a couple months later, the Norwegians found it or whatever, or if they saw it land, um, but yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it starts off giving, I mean, it definitely makes it a sci-fi movie from the very beginning, but I feel like you could do without it too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could lose it. It is, it feels, now that it's become like canonical though,
1: it feels like an important part of the movie, you know? Yeah. I don't know really like. How many instances of that kind of thing happened beforehand? But I feel it—it it feels like something you've seen before, you know. It definitely does. So. For sure. All right. So, how did this movie do at the box office, Jonathan? This was actually not one of Carpenter's more well-received films, um, which is and it shocking. may have something. Yeah, which is shocking because, and and a lot of Carpenter's films though have not done well at the box office and gone on to have a really. Um, like a revival, a critical uh, and cult revival. And this is definitely one of those, probably at the top of those uh, films of his works. But one of the reasons for the um, less than stellar reception might be the fact that it came out the same summer as another alien movie that has a much happier ending than this one uh, by the name of E.T., the extraterrestrial. Um, And so when you're putting out these two movies at the same time, In the summer, especially, uh, which is, you know, more more for kind of, I guess, casual viewing experience That's kind of what it's become uh, as far as summer movies go. Um, And uh, I guess E.T. kind of won out on that one. Um, But now the thing has become this uh, whole other entity that is more associated, I think, with. Halloween and horror films and stuff like that, uh, rather than like, uh, blockbuster, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg fair, which tends to be more casual viewing. Yeah. It's
0: interesting cause both directors kind of helped push genre filmmaking into the mainstream. Um, absolutely. Yeah. But it definitely quickly became a thing where, the demographic that Hollywood was appealing to wasn't
1: the John Carpenter demographic. It was the Steven Spielberg demographic, right? Which is not good or bad, but, uh, it's just very two totally different, um, types of mindsets going into a movie with, you know, at a very high level, a very similar premise as far as an alien coming down to earth and, uh, interacting with humans. Oh, for sure. For sure. Could you imagine if like halfway through E.T. it took the thing turn? (laughs) It just like consumes the boy and starts looking like him to all of the boy's friends and stuff. I don't know. Uh, so somebody out there better, better pick up on that. Um, all right, cool. Anything else about the thing, Alex? Uh, that's all I got. All right. Well then let's talk about, uh, John Carpenter overall. Um, and some things that are kind of indicative of his style. He definitely has an aesthetic. We've talked about his um, very stylistic lighting. uh, That's not always realistic, but definitely always gives a feeling. Um, He does use lens flares sometimes, but mostly in a more kind of natural sense than we're kind of used to nowadays. Um, And then of course, uh, fog and mists and things that kind of thicken up the air and the feeling uh, of the films. And, of course, synths everywhere. Yeah, we need more synths, man. Where are all the synths in music these days? Uh, uh, ask Daft Punk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they use synths differently. They Now it's gone. The synth was an intermediary. That's the thing. Once we were able to fully digitize sound, we didn't yeah. need a synth. So... It's a type of sound that's kind of been lost. Um, Except for very
1: specific cases.
0: But yeah. uh, But yeah, anyway, we've also talked today about Carpenter uh, doing a lot of his own music. And obviously, if you're a fan of his scores, there are full length score albums out there that he's been putting out over the past few years. I'm sure he's working on more too um, that are available for, I'm sure, rental or purchase.
1: Yeah. And he, uh, is one of those directors that has frequent collaborators and a series of frequent collaborators. So, um, for example, Jamie Lee Curtis was in several of his films. Um, also, uh, as we talked about, um, Kurt Russell, uh, even his, uh, one of his story collaborators, Deborah Hill, um, wrote and produced a lot of his films with him, um, and, uh, uh, Dean Cundy is
0: the cinematographer on all three of the movies we talked about today and many, oh, okay. many, many of, uh, John Carpenter's films. And we talked about the signature look that, um, John Carpenter came up with. And while he directed it, it was Dean Cundy who actually designed the look and, you know, implemented it and kind of yeah. made it so popular. So it's tempting to refer to it as the Carpenter look, but it's probably the Carpenter Cundey look.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, I mean, John Carpenter had a lot of creative people that uh, he really clicked with and got his style, and you know, made his style what it is. Uh, and so he just collaborated with them over and over again, and we've seen that in many, many directors. But uh, John Carpenter definitely has his own thing going on, and it works really well. How did you think, or what did you think of Kurt
0: Russell after uh, watching these movies? Because I don't know if you've seen that many Kurt Russell movies.
1: I think I've seen more old Kurt Russell movies, like Westerns and stuff that he's uh, been in. And so it was interesting to see him as uh, the young action guy and not um, the old the old bitter cowboy uh, kind of character. But it's funny because you can even kind of see uh, that persona in some of his younger roles and it just kind of like evolves into... Uh, the persona that we see nowadays in like the hateful eight and stuff like that. I think he was in open range too. Is that right? Oh, geez. That's asking for too much information that I have in my head. Oh, I'm sorry. That was uh, Kevin Costner and Robert Duvall. My bad. Well, everyone
0: gets it mixed up. All right, Jonathan, what are we talking about next week on the podcast?
1: So, next week we have our good friend Jason Harden on, who, uh, as you probably know, does all of our uh, summaries for us. But we're going to be talking about the animation of Don Bluth next time uh, with The Secret of Nim from 1982. The Land Before Time from 1988, and Anastasia from 1992. And if you want to get a little bit of a refresher on some history of that era of animation, you can go back and check out our uh, episode with Aaron Johnson about uh, Disney, Disney's... Um, almost failure and then resurgence with their uh renaissance the disney renaissance um and we mentioned don bluth kind of breaking off from disney and doing his own thing becoming a competitor and so we're going to be continuing that discussion next time with jason and we're definitely looking forward to it
0: for sure but who's going to do the the summaries is jason we're going to make him do them live
1: on air right yeah, we'll do something like that. Maybe, maybe we'll read them uh, for him screw or something. It. We'll do it know. live. We'll, f- we'll figure it out. Um, yeah, and so if you would like to support the show, you can do so. We have a Patreon account and a coffee account. Uh, and our latest Patreon podcast was over the film *The Hoodlum* from 1919, starring Mary Pickford. Uh, So that, if you enjoyed our our Mary Pickford conversation from last time on this show, you can go uh, and listen to more of it on the bonus podcast. And our newest Patreon commentary track is The Asphalt Jungle, which Alex watched and uh, talked his way through. So if you'd like to hear all of his thoughts of one of his favorite noir films, you can do so there. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS And I'm at Alex Gerringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. See ya. Fun fact: Halloween is Jason's favorite holiday. So that's not surprising. That's why at we had all. him. That's why we had him do our Halloween episode last year with uh, Tim Burton. Oh, you mean the one that I had like
0: a massive infection for and don't remember recording? And you you
1: you watched the wrong movie. You watched Beetlejuice instead of Sweeney Todd. Yeah, yeah, she.
0: Yeah, I don't know.
1: I still think <laughs> I still think
0: it. we covered Beetlejuice on the podcast to this
1: day. Uh, we also still haven't covered Alien. I still still think we have I know but I I promise you we haven't I will need proof that we haven't Uh, I have a list of the movies